Well, good morning. It is always a joy to be among the Lord's people and a special privilege to share the Word of God with you. Uh, I sometimes, you know, start off by saying, give me your ears. Um, if preachers love any part of your body, uh, it must be your ears, because that's how uh, we address uh, the heart. Your heart, don't give it to me, give it to the Lord. Your eyes, while you're, you know, busy between the ears and the heart, you know, turn them to the Bible, because that's what we're going to be looking at, that's what we need this morning hear the word from the Lord. You see the uh, presentation I'll be following uh, with slides, and you see that our sermon title today is Our Glory and Joy, and it's taken from the book of 1 Thessalonians. So if you have your Bible, give your eyes to your scripture, open it up, and open up the second chapter of the book of Thessalonians. Uh, we are studying this particular epistle in our church in Sidikamsk, Russia, where I minister presently. And uh, it's uh, a book that I've turned my attention to because of increasing inquiries about uh, last day events, you know, uh, the things that are concerned with eschatology, uh, theologically speaking. And I'm very thankful that I have this privilege of turning my attention to the subject of the second coming of Christ. Because I think it is one subject that is frequently misunderstood, misapplied, and we're missing a great blessing if we have not learned to think properly about the return of Christ. So this morning, I hope that our minds will be turned to that future event that it will change the way we live at the present. So let's read First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. We're not going to be doing an extensive contextual reading, but uh, basically I want to draw your attention to verses 19 and 20. But let's start with verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see your face, you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. When we think of glory, I do not think that we have learned from Scripture to think of people that we have brought to the Lord. Somehow we are, as Bible believers, we are taught, yes, we are to witness, we are to spread the gospel. And I think genuinely every sincere believer wants to do that um, we strive to do that. We struggle with that because increasingly, I think, as uh, a new age kind of shapes, you know, changes its form, um, the things that we knew how to do in the past no longer seem to be very effective. And there is a constant challenge to learn to evangelize in an ever-changing context. But what I would like us to look at today is that people is our glory and our joy. People whom we win for Christ. And so the question that arises out of this statement is, will you have glory before the Lord at his coming? If souls that we win to Christ is the source of our glory and joy. Will you have that glory? Will you have that joy? I think the problem that this text kind of presents before us is that Christians think very negatively and minimalistically of their salvation in Christ. What I mean by negatively, 
I think that people generally, when they think of salvation, they think of, oh, if I'm saved from hell, that's good enough for me. That's a very negative concept because it actually doesn't state anything positive, you know, in terms of, it just says it cancels out the bad. And hell is bad. And it is, you know, it's very distressing to see people make light of hell. Because if there is one thing that should terrify every lost sinner, and that is a thought of hell, because while here on earth, while your body is not consumed momentarily by flames and cannot be ever you know, snuffed out of existence, which is what hellfire is, yeah, it's easy to make fun of it. It's easy to say, oh, there are lots of great guys and girls in there and we'll all have a great party you know, around a bonfire. And that's how generally people sort of joke about this thing. But hellfire is a terrifying reality of the future. And for those who have passed into hellfire, it's a present reality. So, but the, the problem with this is that, you know, no matter how many people, you know, say they have these visions of these, you know, things that, you know, transpired, they semi-died, or they had a vision uh, of sorts, None of these visions ever strike fear into the hearts of those who fear not. So I'm not here to try to convince you of the horrors of hellfire. I'm here to turn your attention to away from the negative conception of salvation to a positive thought. So if God saves us from hellfire, what, is, what does he save us for? What is he directing us to? We think negatively of our salvation, and we think, well, so long that I don't go to hell, I'm okay. That's just not the way God thinks of our salvation. We think minimalistically about our salvation, and uh, that is basically, well, if I'm just saved, you know, if I cross the, the heaven's gate, and I'm secure in that nebulous, you know, something that we call heaven, then I'm okay. But God actually, I think, wants to give his people a far greater idea of salvation because what he has prepared for us passes even our ability is beyond our imagination. And the thing that we need to strive for to live properly at the present is to have a right idea of what awaits us in the future because your present will affect your future. That's what we will talk about today. The reason we think negatively about our salvation and minimalistically about it is because we actually do not think of the glory Salvation is not primarily about us as people, although we are an integral, integral part of, our, of the salvation. We are the ones being saved. We tend to th forget that God does all things for his glory. And our salvation, yes, it's of critical interest to us because it is our life uh, that is at stake. But our salvation is of critical interest to God because it concerns His glory. And we just don't care about God's glory. We care about ourselves. That's why we do not live every day for the glory of God. Yes, we know to say the right things. We are supposed to eat and drink for the glory of God. We're supposed to live and breathe for the glory of God. But how often do we actually strive to glorify God? To glorify Him in our thoughts, to glorify Him in our lives, to glorify Him in our witness. And this idea of glory is a bit strange to us. I don't think people, we as Christians, 
are trained to think that we need glory. And so that's the next question that I want to sort of ask you. Do people need glory? I know that we're convinced, yes, people don't really need to go to hell. At least they don't really want that if they're, you know, straight in their mind. But positively, do people need glory? Do people have something about them that is beyond just, you know, being secure, being comfortable, being safe? And I would say absolutely yes. Because people are not animals. They're made in the image of a being that is glorious, that does everything for his glory. God is glorious. He guards his glory and he seeks his glory. If God did not seek glory, we would not exist. Because everything that he created, he created for his glory. And the work of salvation is the work that demonstrates the glory of his grace. God seeks his glory and he guards it jealously. In Isaiah 42, 8, we read, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48, 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory... I will not give to another. So, if God is glorious, and man was made after the image of God, it follows logically that man must be glorious. Not on the same kind of level, because we're a mere image, but to be an image of a glorious being and be without glory is to not reflect that being at all. That is why the subject of our glory is very, very important. It's important to God. If it's not important to you, if you care not what people think of you, what will be said of you at the last judgment... God cares, because what will be said of you will reflect upon His glory. Because His salvation is not about just getting people out of hell. His salvation is to create perfect, Christ-like, glorious images that are not God, that are like God, that demonstrate His glorious grace. His work of salvation. So salvation is not a negative reality. It should be a positive reality that transforms us. Man must be glorious. And sin is a deprivation of our glorious state. Because scripture says in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. In John 5:44, Jesus says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? We all know that people want to be glorious. We've come up with different names for it, like self-esteem and things like that. But we all feel the mistreatment when someone puts us down when someone does not treat us with honor, it, it does something within us that is beyond biology. It's something that reflects man must be glorious. He must be honored. Parents must be honored by their children. It's built into the human being to seek that honor, to strive for that. And it hurts when we don't get it. That is why the subject is applicable to all of us. Man must be glorious. 
And sin is that privation of glory. It's negation of glory. It takes away what is truly glorious from man. The next thought in this chain of you know, thinking is that Christ left his glory in order to obtain glory. That is what we know from Scripture again. Philippians 2.6 says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And that could be kind of interpreted as he left his glory by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death And that, paradoxically, was the most shameful moment because death of the cross was a shameful kind of death, not just a painful kind of death. It was an inglorious kind of death. A Roman citizen could not be crucified because it was below what they deemed worthy of what it means to be a Roman. Christ voluntarily left his glory. And he acquired something that gives him glory unlike any other that he did not have even before his, you know, his, uh, lost the term, <laughs> incarnation. There you go. I'm sorry, my, my English, you know, preaching twice a year in English is not a very good way to keep your English up, so. I may stumble. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Pray for me. <laughs> so Christ, he left his glory. He prayed for his glory. In John 17, we read, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. There is an interesting connection. Christ needs to be glorified in order to glorify God. And I, I would say, you need to be glorified if God is to be glorified in you. Verse 5, we read, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existence existed. And we need to be restored to glory. To glorify God. Christ obtained glory. In Hebrews 2.9 we read, But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The suffering of death was his pathway to glory, and that is exactly what we read in Philippians 2.9. Therefore, that after Christ had died that shameful death of the cross, God had highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In our salvation, henceforth, if our fall into sin was our deprivation of glory, our forsaking the glory that God bestowed upon us, then salvation must mean a restoration to a glorious reflection of this glorious being we call God. In Romans 2.6, that is how scripture puts People who are being saved, in, it actually describes them by that language. For it says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. 
Romans 8.17. It speaks of our consummation of our salvation by, in terms of glorification. If, if children, their heirs, uh, they, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. And verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And our sanctification, which is the process of our salvation here on earth, is described this way. Listen, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You get glorified by watching the glorious one. You actually, you're seeing that glory transforms you. It unleashes something within you that is bound up in, as if in darkness. It sort of needs that glorious light of Christ to make you glorious. To make you what you are you are a Christian. You are a godlike, glorious individual. That is your destiny. That what God foresees for you. He wants you to be glorious. God desires you to have glory before the Lord at his coming, and the question mark is a mistake. There is no question mark. That is what God desires for you to have. It's like parents who desire their children to be successful, to be happy, to be honorable in every way. How much more that desire that mere humans can feel toward their children is a reflection of God's desire for His creation, for His people that He created for His glory. So there is, I think, a place for saying to all Christians, enough. Enough of thinking so little of your salvation as to think, well, if you're saved from hell, then bless God, you know, happy I am, hallelujah, and that's it. And there's nothing that you need anymore. There's a great deal more that you need and a great deal more that God provided for you you will never strive for it unless you see that from Scripture. In Hebrews 5, there is that prodding that we hear when it says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, and need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. For some of you, that rebuke strikes home. You've been playing in a sandbox of Christianity for far too long. You've been thinking minimalistically. Well, I'm saved, so what, what do I care? What do I need more? God says, I care. I bought this salvation with far greater plans for you, for every one of you, than you can even imagine. And we need to be kind of you know, prodded, shaken up, so how long will you not strive for glory? How long will your Christianity look more pathetic than glorious? Because, tell you, the unsaved people around you, they want to see a Christianity that is glorious. They want to see a reflection of the glory of God in our lives. They're tired 
of seeing these you know, measly kind of you know, expectations, very small. Oh, okay, you know, I, I'm saved. That's it. They want to see something that transforms you, something that takes you out of yourself, something that draws your attention to people. And people are the worst because we don't like people. They are sinners. They are hard to love. And if you want to have glory, you must get over not loving people. And that means you must look at them as God looks at them. Not for what they are, but what they can be. Christ. Because that's how God looks at you. He loves you. And that's not because of the way you look right now. He loves you because he sees you clothed in glory. He sees you shining, radiating the beauty of God's love, His grace, His mercy, His patience. Every single attribute of God is built into you as an image of God. And you must reflect that. We must learn to reflect that. And we must do that now. By the time you get there, it's going to be a bit too late for some things that we're talking about today. But let's talk about today, and we're going to pick up the pace, because this was just kind of a foundation. And now we're going to go back to the text, and look at the text and see those things. And I hope those things will, instead of discouraging you, as every sermon can, I hope that ultimately the Lord will kind of prod you and encourage you, and you will have a hope of glory and joy that is to come because you will live right now in a way that will obtain that in greater measure. So the first thing is the text speaks about when these things will happen and they will happen at the coming of Christ. Paul says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? So that is the thing that we must point to. I think people don't really think about his second coming because there is that very negative concept of what will happen when he comes. And the reason we have this negative, almost a desire, instead of, oh, yay, Lord Jesus, come, we want to say, oh, please, not right now. Because we live in a way that we kind of, you know, kind of measure ourselves up to it. And we say, hey, if Christ returns right now, I'm going to hang my head in shame. Look at my life. Look at what I've done or what I haven't done. There are all these reasons why we think of Christ's coming not as a glorious hope, as something that gives us excitement, that gives us joy of anticipation. It's something very negative for us. And we prefer actually not to think about it frequently. I think... Once the sufferings kick in, once the world will hate us for real, and there will be no place to hide where you will just have to either admit you're a Christian and be persecuted for that, then when you are persecuted, I think you will be looking at the promise of the Lord's coming, Lord, come right now. But we need to remind ourselves about this coming because this kind of a, reservation and lack of excitement about Christ's coming is common to men. There's something within us, within our fallen nature, that actually does not want him to come back. And the world actually acts like he, it will never happen. We live in this world, so I know we sort of you know, pick up some of these ideas. But Peter said... You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And if you listen to anybody speak on the subject of the Lord's coming... 
basically, there is this very characteristic approach. You know, there are all these people that keep predicting that he's going to come, and they're dumb enough people that want to keep trying to do that. And then the world that says, hey, he didn't come back then. Nothing changed. He's not going to come. People mock the very idea of the second coming. They call you crazy for believing that he will. But we must remember that God's measure of time is different. His goal is different. That's why Peter continues, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, and that is not a way to you know, calculate ages of the earth or whatever. Some people read that and they think, oh, all right, so 7,000 years, the Lord must be close. And they think of these things in terms of formulas. This is not a formula. This is a way to say God is free of the bondage of time. For him, it does not matter what, how much time passes on earth. He is not bound by time as we are. And the Lord... If he seems slow, he's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. It's not that he promised something that he didn't really intend to keep, and now he's just trying to wait out every day, you know, how to avoid doing what he doesn't like. But his slowness is patience. It's patience towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's purpose for time in this present world is that all whom he had foreknown, whom he had chosen to be in Christ, that they would reach that repentance. In other words, his desire for the glorious people to be realized to the fullest, and he will not give out one away. So one thing that we must remind ourselves and change is that belief in the second coming of Christ. Instead of breaking our minds over, is it, you know, mill, post-mill, pre-mill, is it pre-trip, post-trip, part-trip, or whatever, and that's where usually eschatology takes us. Apart from the details of those things that are significant and important, we must, first of all, learn to love the Lord's appearance. We must live in anticipation of it. We must be ready, prepared for it. Because at that time, we will be judged. The text does not mention the word judgment, but that doesn't mean the word is, or the concept is not there. For what is our hope or joy or crown or of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming is that not you, for you are our glory and joy. And what is implied is that when Jesus will come, he will measure things up. He will test us. And Paul is secure in the thought that these people, Thessalonian believers, are the cause of his joy. He will have a crown because of the ministry that he had with Thessalonians and other places. He is excited about that as, as a as an athlete who has done some remarkable achievement, he is awaiting that ceremony of you know, uh, reward because he is going to be rewarded. And that is what will happen with um, believers at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's why we need to sort of kind of play around, uh, around with those terms because judgment is a concept that needs to be clarified. There's a judge that you know, pronounces a verdict. His whole idea of judgment is to determine guilty or not guilty. But then there are other judges, other types of judges, that as in sports, for instance, they judge the way that people, uh, athletes, uh, compete, whether they're doing it according to the rules. And then finally, they're rewarding those who have achieved something remarkable, and we all know that. 
And that is exactly what we need to think when we think of believer's judgment, because we need to understand that for us, the verdict of guilty, not guilty has already taken place. In Christ, we are free of condemnation, and that is what comes to those who are not with Christ. So if you're not here as, as a believer, if you have not yet called out to the Lord and you not, have not yielded your heart to Christ, that is, should be your primary concern right now because all this talk about glory probably makes no sense to you whatsoever because you have not even started you know, the, the trip back, so to speak. The question for you is, will you be justified? And without Christ, there is no hope. All of your works, all of your deeds, all of your thoughts, all of your words, they will condemn you when God examines all of those things. Because none of those things were done for the Lord's glory. And that means all of those things were sin or not without sin. But for believers... There is no condemnation. There is a group of believers that still, while they confess Christ, they keep fearing that somehow they will get lost. God will change his mind when he sees your life. And instead of being justified with Christ, you will be condemned in the future. You need to really settle this. If you are one of these believers that thinks that salvation in Christ does not mean you will be eternally glorified and secure in his keeping, you really need to settle that issue. I know that because I was among those believers. I used to think that I know how a believer's mind thinks when all you do is you, threat, you fret over your eternal destiny. Because if you think of your own performance and your hope of salvation is not Christ's perfect righteousness, but your imperfect obedience, your obedience can never be perfect enough. And that means you're always fearful of losing any hope of salvation. And that means you're always thinking of, of salvation merely in negative terms. It holds you down if you think that you're not secure in Christ. But we need to settle it. John 5:24 says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life." Eternal life is not something that, you know, sits in your pocket and then if you're not careful it kind of falls out and you're left without it. Eternal life is eternal union with Christ. It cannot be snuffed out. Otherwise, it wouldn't be eternal. It is what it is in God. And it is the same life Christ has. So that life lives in people who believe in Christ. He who believes in Christ does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is one reality, and we must settle that before we can move on to the other, but our time is short, so we need to move. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, we read of the other reality that believers, while they do not no longer face any condemnation, they will face an examination of their life, and every single thing that you do will be examined. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If you don't care about justice, God cares about it. He cares about it so much that he says, if you give even a small cup of water in the name of a disciple, you will not lose your reward. God has a logbook of everything that you've done. And he does that. Because he is a just God. 
He's not only dealing with things that are, you know, sin and things like that. He deals with these things because good things must be rewarded just as bad things must be punished. In Romans 14 we read, for, this, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So to sum it all up, believer's judgment basically falls into two parts. In the past, that is, at the crucifixion of Christ, when Christ bore your sin, God judged our sin. And in the future, God will judge our works. God judged our sin. He cleansed us. He forgave us. He will no longer bring our sin to be against us as the new covenant promise of Jeremiah uh, affirms. And in the future, we will all be judged for what we do. That is why the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is a wisdom to live by. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And that is not a downer. Because if you live in a way that does good, then you should be excited. Every single good deed you do, God will not think it's small to ignore it. He will think it big enough to be considered and to be rewarded. And God will reward all good that we do. That brings us to believers' glory. That is what Paul said. What is our hope of, or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. The joy part is easy. We read of Samuel Rutherford who wrote the beautiful hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. And in that hymn, there are 19 verses, so you should be glad that you don't sing the whole thing. But in those verses, there is that tucked away, this idea. He ministered in Anworth. And it was a hard ministry. People did not respond well to the gospel. So that at one point he said, Oh, if one soul from Anworth meet me at God's right hand, my heaven will be two heavens. We think of joys that are earthly. We barely consider what will be our joys in the future. And I'm afraid we think of heaven as, you know, more of earthly joys. Heaven will be an, a, a wonderfully incredible place beyond our imagination. But what will truly give us joy is the knowledge that we have been instruments to bring people into glory. Paul, for that purpose, changed everything about what he did, what he lived for. 1 Corinthians 9.15, he says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground of boasting. And that, you know, if I didn't know any better, I would think that sounds really strange. But it actually sounds right because he learned to think of glory the way God thinks of glory. He is jealous to the point of death. It is better for him to die than to become inglorious. That is what Jesus chose for us. So 
So Paul continues, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge. It is not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Unless you think that Paul was the only kind of a strange bird of the flock, John the Apostle writes in second letter, of John, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full award. 1 Corinthians 9.19 speaks of Paul, uh, in the words of Paul this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So the weak, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So the question that we started with is the question that I want to leave you with. Will you have glory before the Lord at his coming? Now salvation has some very common things that apply to all of us. We are all forgiven all our sins in Christ. We are all pronounced righteous, but there is an aspect of salvation that will be left individual based upon what you do in this life. In the future, the opportunities will be no more. So will you have glory in the future based upon your life now? It should change the way we live. It should change the way we think of people, the way we think of what we have. All of these things are resources that God has given you, given us, that we might win people. All that needs to take place in our minds is that we would become all things to all men. We need to stop being so individualistic as to live in our comfort zone, guard that comfort zone, let no one interfere with that comfort zone. Because if all you do is you guard yourself, you will never win people for Christ. They won't come to you. You guard yourself too hard, too well. If people are to be saved, if glory is to be obtained, we must change. We must learn to become others for others. Learn, adapt, not live by what is comfortable to me, but live of what is productive for the cause of the gospel. That is what I think scripture means when it says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We usually reverse the order. We think our job, our income, our comfort, that comes first. And if there's time left, yes, of course, you know, visitation or whatever we do in the cause of the gospel that we think that should be done as well. God says, no, 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 put my interests first. Make everything that you have as a resource for evangelism, as a resource to draw people to Christ. In Ephesians 6, um, 15, we read, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There's got to be a change in our understanding. God really does want us to acquire glory. Glory in the form of the new relationships, the new ministries that we give our life into other people. 
In 1 Peter 5, we read, So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I assure you, no pastor can do the work of an evangelist that the church ought to do. We are to team up together. We are to be creative into how to let people know the truth of the gospel in how to disciple them, in how to establish them in their faith so that we would look at them and say, this is my glory. This is part of that crown that God will give me. Paul lived well. That idea of Christ's coming, the future judgment, must have been so deeply in. Uh, rooted in his mind that by the end of his life he was able to save this. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Unless you think he's too you know, fixated on himself, he adds, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So I hope that today we were able to look anew at the reality of the second coming of Christ. Of course, all these things are beyond what we can do of ourselves, and Thank God we don't have to do it on our own. God has provided more grace for us that we need to accept, we need to believe, and we need to implement. That's why the promise of 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13 is so precious. Paul knows that is where we need to leave things off. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let us stand and pray and seek the Lord. Our gracious Father, we are thankful that you are a glorious God that seeks to restore us unto glory. We thank you for the grace that leads us. We thank you for the image of Christ. Looking unto him, we can be transformed from glory unto glory. Lord, I pray that we would turn our eyes on you, at that Savior that we confess. May our hearts be drawn to live in this present world with full expectation and joy of the coming of our Lord and Savior, and of his judgment, when he will reward us for all the good things that we do in the name of Jesus. We ask these things.